He, because yeah, you know, physically, I'm very intimidating. That's, <laughs> you know, we don't call you the intimidator for no reason. That's right. Um, but uh, but he was telling me that broken noses are exceedingly. Hello and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. Thanks for listening. This is George Darden. And Patrick Ollinger. And we are both endurance athletes and coaches here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, on this podcast, we talk about news and we talk about research and we talk about topics of issues to the local, national, and international endurance community. So, Happy New Year, Patrick. Happy New Year to you, George. Um, here we are on New Year's Eve, 2017. Any big New Year's resolutions, Patrick? New Year's resolutions for me, oh, that's a good question. I guess there's a lot of running uh, <laughs> resolutions, as you can imagine. It's a pretty easy one. Yeah. Pretty easy field to set some uh, some goals around. Right. Most of the, the first one, of course, is to make it to the Boston starting line and be ready to complete that and right enjoy the experience that is Boston and enjoying the community of those in the city and all the runners who make it there and get to enjoy such a race. Yeah. Boston has a very communal feel in that regard. Um yeah, you know, I always tell people it's like the Super Bowl of running in that, you know, making it there doesn't necessarily mean you are the best in the world, but it it means that you've you've sacrificed a lot. And one thing I love about that race is not just the race itself, but the weekend. You know, mm-hmm. when you're on the train, whenever I'm anywhere in Boston that weekend, I just turn to the person next to me and say, how are you? My name's Patrick. Where are you from? And they always have an interesting story to tell. They yeah. can be from Scotland. They can be from... The Pacific Northwest. They can be from anywhere, and they have some kind of story of perseverance that they, you know, something they had to overcome to get there, and it's always interesting. Right on. There, the uh, the ultra runner Mike Wardian, um, mm-hmm. who is kind of known for doing bizarre things, like he holds the world record currently for a marathon wearing a Spider-Man costume and a marathon wearing an Elvis costume. For a while, he held the world record for uh, the marathon while pushing a stroller, uh, and he ran like under. 235 pushing a stroller, by the way. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, uh, his son is now 10 that he pushed in the stroller, so yeah, he wouldn't be able to do that now. But, um, but, uh, but he he runs just loads and loads and loads of races every year. Like last year, he did every marathon major in a single year. He did all 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 of them in, mm-hmm. in 2016. Um, but he talks about, he does Boston every year, and he talks about how Boston feels like going home. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like a homecoming every year. Yeah, so so very cool, and lots of folks can be up there for that. So, any other resolutions? Uh, resolutions for me, um, and then I guess my next marathon will probably be in December, and that would be the the hope for the PR one. I, so, but we'll see. I still have to actually register, so we have to. <laughs> that's why I'm not naming any specifics yet. I have to make sure registration's still up and all that jazz. But well, and you had said that that you're the the pattern you've fallen into over the course of the past few years is you do Boston in the spring and you try and do a fast marathon in the fall, right? Yes, yeah, because Boston's not the PR course. It, it's interesting, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this at a later podcast. But a lot of people look at the downhill start and if they've never done it before. I can't say how many people I've talked to said, "Oh, it must be great. I'm going to PR." Mm-hmm. And anybody you, who's ex- you, get, you get to the halfway point and you think you are. <laughs> yeah, and then and it's it's I, I could just tell you I I've tried to talk people out of it being a PR course, and then eventually I've just learned you have to kind of almost nod your head and say okay, well we'll see about that, and right. then at the finish line you meet him and say okay, how'd that go? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and chances are it doesn't go all that well. Yeah, yeah. yeah so very and part cool. of it's just the timing of the hills, you know. Yeah. But uh, how about you? Resolutions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always have, like, sort of small resolutions. 
Uh, case in point, I, I'm, I have a resolution to not eat anything standing up. All right, I, I um... <laughs> so because I feel like I feel like when I stand up when I'm eating something, it's because I'm finishing the French fries on my son's plate, or it's because I'm in a hurry and not really paying attention to what I'm putting in my mouth, or something like that. And so, so one of my resolutions for 2018 is to any time I'm going to eat something, to the degree that it's possible, I'm going to sit down. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, so process one like that. Um, running wise, you know, I'm, I'm currently wearing a boot, even though appropriately enough on January 1st tomorrow I'll be able to start exercising again and uh, and I, I can take two weeks to start weaning myself off of having to wear this uh, wretched boot um, that I've been wearing now for eight weeks but um, you know assuming that my 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 healing follows the trajectory that I want it to mm-hmm. um, I have some some ideas for the later part of the year um, but you know I, I don't like you kind of said I, I haven't signed up for anything and, and I'm not gonna sign up for anything until I get a better sense of of where I am with my healing and all that sort of thing. So, so yeah, so, so most of those, I'm going to have to put off those 2018 resolutions still a little bit later on, you know. Um. So I have several reactions to that. One, <laughs> the not eating while standing up, I'm just picturing George Costanza in that episode of Seinfeld where he gets in trouble for double dipping the chip. And yeah, I think you're right. See, I would I would not do that in 2018. And so that'd be like that'd be like the ripple effect of it. Yeah. Is that I won't be double dipping because I won't be standing in the first place. Also, I love goals where instead of like saying directly, I will not eat poorly or I will not eat chips or drink Coca-Cola, you almost kind of passively go about it where you say, I'm not going to eat right. after 8 o'clock or right. I'm not going to eat standing up. Because yeah. that's when you, those seem, to me seem to be the more attainable goals where you yeah. just say, all right, there's no reason for me to be eating after 8 o'clock or while standing yeah. up. And then lo and behold, you end up cutting out right. a lot of the bad stuff anyways without... Right feeling like you have to live the Spartan lifestyle. Totally. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that. I, you know, I, I, I went back and listened to the New Year's resolution podcast that I recorded on like January 2nd of uh-huh. 2017. And, and in that one, um, I, I sort of gave some general things that I think people should keep in mind when they're, when they're doing resolutions. And one of the things I, I happened to sort of throw out when, when doing that was saying that, that when you make a, a resolution, it needs to be something kind of quantifiable, something mm-hmm. that you can actually say, here is something I'm going to do. Um, and that if you just say, oh, I'm going to become a better cyclist, what does right. it mean to be a better cyclist? Right. Um, you know, I, I had a, a former coach that, that used to say that people would come to him and say, I want to be a faster cyclist. And he would say, well, just ride your bike faster. Like, if you want to be faster, just go faster, right? So, so you, you have to actually say, okay, no, what I want to do is do a 40K time trial in this time, or mm-hmm. I want this to be my new functional threshold power or something like that. You have to actually say, okay, what does it actually mean to be faster? Right. Um, and, and I agree with them on that. So um, it's kind of the other side of the same coin that you're saying, that, that if you could sort of have the, these broad general goals, and they, they, they ultimately in themselves will not be fulfilled. So Right, and... It, uh, and it kind of is so two things. One, it's also best to instead of saying, as you said, don't directly say, "I want to be faster" or "I want to save more money" or "I want to mm-hmm. eat better." Sometimes, like I know with personal finance, they say the best thing you can do is just track all your expenses. Mm-hmm. And they say that with same weight, thing with food, with right? weight loss. Yeah. yeah, if you tell yourself no cookies, what you'll do is you'll hold off on cookies for three days, and then you'll pound eight packs of. <laughs> You know, like on that fourth day, or that, you know, you'll just crush, it's like, well, okay, you should just... You'll, you'll eat far more cookies than you had in the previous four days. But if yeah. you simply track, and you don't even make a goal to improve yourself, 
then you say, you know, is this cookie worth a thousand calories or whatever that, mm. you know, Mondo cookie is? And you just naturally cut out a few of them. Right. And that's going to have a much bigger impact because mm. you're doing it regularly. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, you need to set process goals. So I kind of on that on that note, my kind of big overarching goals are to, number one, enjoy Boston. Number two, run a fast marathon and a fast half marathon. Mm-hmm. But then really my goals for that, what that means training-wise is I want to increase my aerobic capacity via medium-long runs and, and easy runs, more of those. And then I want to increase my lactate threshold, mm-hmm. which we talked about in the last podcast. That comes from a lot of tempo miles, maybe tempo repeats. And kind of like the cookies thing, that doesn't mean nothing but tempo runs or mm-hmm. no cookies ever. It just mm-hmm. means you know we're going to layer on one or two more tempo miles yeah. or we're going to layer on one or two more medium long runs over the course of a 14 day mm-hmm. cycle cool very good i like it i like it a lot as a matter of fact so very good uh, let's talk about some some news you want to go first you want me to go first go ahead uh so i yeah actually it's good that i go ahead because i think your piece of news is more uplifting than mine um there's there's not a whole lot happening in the world of triathlon in the world of of, of endurance sports and running right now um uh, and and so there's a piece of news that I didn't really want to do, but it's becoming more and more central, and it's getting more and more attention here at the end of the year. And so I figured I might as well mention it. Uh, and that's uh, that's that's the the doping allegations surrounding Tour de France champion Chris Froome. Uh, so for those of you like Patrick who are not necessarily fans of professional cycling, uh, Chris Froome is a British cyclist. He was actually born in Kenya, um, but he uh, he lives in Great Britain, um, and he's won three of the last four Tours de France. Um, he is the best Grand Tour cyclist in the world right now, and he has been the dominant cyclist in, in, in Grand Tours in the world over the course of the past few years. This year, uh, there are three Grand Tours. There's a Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia, and the, the Vuelta a España. Um, this past year, he won two of them. He won mm-hmm. both the Tour de France and the Vuelta a España. It's the first time since 1978 that anybody's won the Tour and the Vuelta in the same year. Mm-hmm. It's the first time since the late 1990s that, that somebody won two Grand Tours in a year. Um, and the guy who did it in the late 1990s, a guy named Marco Pantani, uh, is now dead from a cocaine overdose. Um, okay. and, and it is generally accepted that he was on all the performing drugs that everybody was on in the late 1990s. Right. Um, and so... so that's kind of the, the, the context here. Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was announced that he returned an adverse analytical finding uh, for a drug test after stage uh, 18 of the Vuelta a España, which he won. Um, he was yeah. also the Brit- first British cyclist ever to win the Vuelta a España. So it's a big deal. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, the reason why I say it's a, a, an adverse analytical finding is because he tested, he over-tested, or he tested positive, not for a banned substance. Rather, what they found was there was a drug called subutamol, uh, which is an asthma drug, and he yeah. has exercise-induced asthma, and he's always had it. I assume um, that's in the albuterol. So I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's a uh, you take it as an inhaler. That's yeah. exactly right, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so salbutamol, um, it doesn't have an, a well-established performance-enhancing benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they don't ban it, and they say you can use it if you want to, if you need it, and he does because he has exercise-induced asthma. But they say you can use no more than 800 micrograms every 12 hours. Um, and so there might be something it could do for you, and so they say, okay, we're going to limit the amount. And that's 800 micrograms every 12 hours is sort of like a normal amount, basically. Mm-hmm. And they, say, they say, yeah, if you have exercise-induced asthma, you can use it. 
This is about the amount that you can use. Um, but they can't like be with you constantly to make sure that you're only using 800 milligrams per or micrograms every 12 hours. And so they test by urine. And so they say if you have a concentration of more than 1,000 nanograms per milliliter, mm-hmm. that means that you probably took more than 800 micrograms every 12 hours. Ergo, you pass the limits and you're, mm-hmm. you're in violation of the rules. He had... 2,000 nanograms per milliliter. And so he literally had twice as much as the legal limit, um, thereby suggesting that he might have been using twice as much of the legal limit of this substance that is not banned, but you're not supposed to use it in excess. And I imagine it's not like testosterone, where part of the hard part about, like, testing for HGH is some people have a lot more testosterone than others. Right, right. It's not a naturally occurring substance in your body. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so... You know, it's a pretty high amount, obviously. Now, um, you also put in the context of what was going on in the vault at the time. That was after stage 18. There's only 21 stages in a grand tour, so it's towards the very end of the race, third week of the race, right? Things are getting hard. On stage 17, he had been in the lead in stage se- er, going into stage 17, 18. He lost time on stage 17 to some of his rivals. It was this cold, ugly day, and he got dropped mm-hmm. uh, going to the top of a mountain. The next day, stage 18, he then gains time, he rebounds, he does well, he takes a few puffs of inhaler at the finish line, and then he goes off and he he pees into a cup and has the adverse analytical finding. And so looking at that, people would say, oh, well, he fell behind that day, so he overused the drug, um, and that's the reason why he did so well in, in stage 18 the next day. Um, and so if you even look at it in context, it looks as if, okay, yeah, he truly enhanced his performance via this, right? So... He, of course, says, no, 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 I didn't do anything wrong. There's a lot of various factors that would lead to that inverse analytical finding of 2,000 nanograms per milliliter in my blood. And so what he has to do now is he has to go into a lab, take the legal amount, and then they're going to test his urine to see whether his body tends to hold on for it, hold on to it. And so, therefore, his body would overread even though he's taken the, the, the prescribed limits, mm-hmm. right? And so it's going to be a long, drawn-out process, that sort of thing. But... If it ends up that he did, in fact, use overuse this drug, um, he could get a 12-month ban, um, and that would probably be backdated to the time of the test. So it would be backdated to, to um, September. Uh, and he, of course, would lose that, that, that Vuelta title. Um, more importantly, um, he's already, a lot of people are saying, okay, he's completely, he did it, and, and he used drugs, and it was performance-enhancing, and all that sort of thing. Um, Lance Armstrong, of all people, on his podcast said, uh, was talking about it a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, the horse is out of the barn. He said, it doesn't matter what happens now. Like, even if if um, Chris Froome proves that, no, 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 uh, I was totally legal, what I was doing is exactly legal, he's already been tainted by this this drug user, performance enhancing drug user thing, as has his team. Um, uh, there was an article on Outside Online that was titled, Chris Froome Just Killed Pro Cycling. And so there's, there's, you know, you and I talked, I think on the last podcast, mm-hmm. about like the way that 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 uh, cycling is under such a microscope because of its history of drug use. And so, given that, there's a lot of focus right now on Chris Froome and whether, in fact, he, at best, stretched the rules. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think? You're not a pro cycling fan, so I'd be interested to hear what you got to say about it. Uh, I know I hit you with a lot of information there, but I have so many things. Uh, okay, one, just the smell test. I've always told people, you know, if you go into a job interview and they make you drop trout at the starting line and pee into a cup every single time you enter the building, that probably means there's a drug problem, which that's what <laughs> they do with cycling, right? Like, it's yeah. like the moment you get there, every single day you have to, like, mm-hmm. take these tests in front of, like, three people. So, like, 
you know, I don't, I don't, you almost don't need the science to know, okay, something's going on here. Um, I, I, I find it fascinating that Lance Armstrong, of all people, says he's now tainted forever. That mm-hmm. almost sounds like he's dragging somebody else into the same. Well, and, and the reason why he's saying, <laughs> the reason why he's saying it, of course, is because he's saying I was. Now, of course, Lance Armstrong actually did it. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say Lance Armstrong. He did it for. I, it seemed, I don't know enough, but it's like he did it for years and years. People talk about he set himself up as a hero for cancer survivor. You know, it's like. Mm-hmm. That's a different stratosphere when you're talking about like children with cancer versus oh, yeah. like pro athlete, you know. Um, yeah, no, there's Chris. Chris Room is no. Um, I mean, he's a good guy. You know, he gives money to charity and all. But don't get me wrong. But but he's he's definitely not holding himself up as this as 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 a model for survivorship the way that Lance Armstrong was. Right, you know? and like Lance Armstrong made mothers explain to their kids like, well. Here's what steroids are, and the kids like seven. You know, like that's that's a different galaxy, um, of of deceit or kind of whatever. And then I, my other reaction is, I talk to people all the time about never tie your personal identity to race results, to athletic achievements, and the the the, the fact of the matter is, the reason why is because a lot of it has to do with the stitches and wires beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of physiolo- physiology you were born with. And here's an example, you know, like you have to know who you are and take the achievements that you have personally rather than kind of comparing yourself to other people because you never know what they're working with. Whether oh, it be I see what you're saying. an artificial, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. an artificial um, advantage like this guy had or a natural one. Like maybe, he, you know, somebody who just has more testosterone flowing mm-hmm. through their veins. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a good point. Um, and it took me a second to, to, to understand the point you're trying to make, but... But that's hard, though, man. Because I mean, we, we we look at particularly, I think, in endurance sports, we look at the people who do it really well and go mm-hmm. super fast, and and we're inspired by that, you know, mm-hmm. um, because they're doing what we're doing. They're just doing it really well and really, really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And so I agree with you that 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 it's better and ultimately healthier, I think, to sort of turn inward and look at yourself, compare yourself to yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and look for those enriching things amongst yourself, as opposed to saying, "Wow, you know, Chris Froome, so fantastic, so inspiring. I want to be like Chris Froome." I agree. That's hard not to do, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, that to me, that is one of those struggles that, I mean, kind of almost engulfs humanity from beginning to end. I mean, we I think they call it the halo effect in psychology where we think because somebody's good at one thing, mm-hmm. yeah. they must have other admirable yeah. qualities. Because yeah. somebody's rich must mean they're right. a great leader. Just it is because, called the halo effect, yeah. You know, just because somebody is tall must mean they have a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. But so much of life in adulthood to me is learning more and more to find... The gems that are maybe hidden beneath the surface. Yeah, and that's a good point. And and yeah, that that to to recognize the complexity of of, of people at large. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us your piece of news, man. Yeah. So mine is a bit more uplifting. Um, <laughs> so the Sacramento Marathon, the California International Marathon, was in early December. It was the kind of championship marathon with you know the, the American Championship Marathon for USATF. And to put it bluntly, the the times that were run in that marathon were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot on this podcast about like the elites like Shailene Flanagan, uh, Galen Rupp, and they all had some great times. And we, there's been a lot of excitement within the track and field community, within the running community, about how great our elites, American elites are doing. Mm-hmm. But then let's also look at this marathon and look at how great our sub-elite athletes are doing, mm-hmm. so to speak. I shouldn't call it sub-elite. That, that doesn't quite give them the credit they deserve. Right. But just a few stats to throw at you. 
38 men ran fast enough for an Olympic trials qualifying time, mm-hmm. which is 219 or better. 53 women ran fast enough for Olympic qualifying time, which is 245. Mm-hmm. That's phenomenal. And that, those yeah. are the in, kind of in, results. In, in a single race. In a single race that mm-hmm. we have not seen in a while. Um, 12 women ran faster than 237, which means they were averaging sub six minutes per mile. Mm-hmm. Um, within our own Atlanta running community, four Atlanta Track Club members ran an Olympic qualifying time. Mm-hmm. 106 people finished sub 230. 659 finished under three hours. And how, how many were under three hours? 659, which is really good considering this wasn't Boston, this wasn't New York, this wasn't Chicago, this wasn't one of those big international yeah. traditional, um, uh, you know, attractive marathons. Well, yeah. And so, and my real takeaway was this shows how much the running community is growing in general, mm-hmm. and that is one thing that I love about our sport that I love about what we're seeing in our sport right now is more and more people are doing it for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. It's not just limited to the Bill Rogers. It's not a sport where if you don't get drafted by the professional team, you have to stop after high school or right. college. It's something you can keep enjoying. It can continue to be a big part of your life. And you can continue to pursue ambitious athletic goals mm-hmm. in a way that you're not allowed to in most other sports just due to you know logistical constraints. Yeah, yeah. If you If you... If you were a collegiate football player, yeah, and you don't you don't make it on to a to a pro football team, right? No one's doing that on the side. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so so you have to yeah. Whereas whereas running, you know, if you don't quite make it as a professional runner, you can still run mm-hmm. hard and run fast and, and find opportunities to, to put in good times. Yeah, I like that about our sport. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. I'll take it actually a step farther and say that 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 the I, I've always very strongly believed. The more people you have under three hours, the more people you're going to have under 2.30. The more people you have under 2.30, the more people you're going to have under 2.20. The more people you have under 2.20, the more people you're going to have under 2.11. Yeah. And so, so I, I always very much have thought that, that um, the, the front of the pack is, is formed in part because of the contributions of the back of the pack and the middle of the pack. Right. Um, and so, so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's incredible that... Um, you know, Shalane Flanagan and Galen Rupp are running fantastically right now. And neither one of them ran in California, by the way. They went for the bigger paydays in New York and Chicago, which right. is great. Um, but um, but uh, I think both of them are pushed by and inspired by um, and and are shaped by the, the, the efforts that are done by those 600-plus people that ran under three hours in California and others. Agree. Um, this is such a communal sport. I mean, I... Um, you know, I started running with ITL a couple of years ago, and I can tell you, I certainly wouldn't be running as competitively or, or you know as much as I am now if I had not found a community of people. Mm-hmm. And if it, the the myth of the loneliness of the long distance runner is, I agree, it's, it, it's a myth, and they've shown it in psychology and in exercise science. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I to me, I just kind of want to give kind of a golf clap to <laughs> the folks that don't always receive you know the attention that aren't on the the Nike commercials, you know, mm-hmm. but that are still just trucking along, doing great things. Totally agree. And yeah. honestly, most people in this marathon, people that ran the Olympic qualifying time, or people that just ran really fast, mm-hmm. a lot of them are teachers, doctors, mm-hmm. dentists. They're doing other things, mm-hmm. and then once they get done with their their nine to five, they kind of take off their Clark Kent outfit and mm-hmm. their Superman roll, running around Kennesaw Mountain or wherever it is that they live. And I just right. think that's phenomenal. That's right. one thing that's just endlessly fascinating about our sport. I agree. I agree. Um, 
Yeah, I, I there was a podcast that I did sometime over the course of the last couple of years about group training um, and the efficacy of groups um, and, and about good groups versus bad groups, as a matter of fact. Um, and so, yeah, you can go back and listen to that one if you're just getting into our podcast. I was actually thinking that, that here on New Year's Eve, maybe maybe one of our first podcasts of next year is going to be some retrospective of 2017 or something, you know. So we don't have to do it yet because 2017 is not over. You know, something amazing could happen tonight, you know, <laughs> yeah. we have missed out on it, but, uh, but, but, but maybe we should include a little bit of that in our next one, so. The way this year's yeah. been going, you, you really never know. <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, for sure. Um, so let's talk about a little bit of research. Um, uh, I wanted to share a piece of research. I feel like the research that I've shared over the course of the past couple of uh, podcasts has been this sort of like, hey, here's some interesting information. You might find this fascinating. I don't know what you're going to do with it. And that's kind of the way I feel about this piece I'm going to share right now. So, um, But it came out of the University of New Mexico School of Medicine uh, in Albuquerque. Uh, it was reported in the American Journal of Public Health um, over the course of the past month or so here. But basically, they the researchers asked 147 middle school and high school athletic directors and trainers in New Mexico, in that state, how many of their students were removed from athletics as a result of sustaining a concussion. Um, so, you know, concussions obviously get a lot of attention right now in all sports, as well they should, as a matter of fact, um, and, and particularly in, in like, football. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of attention being paid to concussions and the, the long-term negative effects that can happen as a result of repeated concussions. Um, and so because those are kind of in the news, um, this, uh, this group wanted to look at it. Um, 99 of those middle and high school athletic directors and trainers responded to them. And so, you know, it's, it's not a small study. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's not a massive one like the one I shared last week, but you know, 99 people is a pretty solid case study. Um, but what they found that was so striking is that the rate of concussions in PE classes was 60% higher than the rates of concussions in the scholastic sports. Um, and to be more specific, um, about 3.5 out of every 100, uh, young people were removed from their sports because of concussions and about 4.7 out of 100, uh, young people were removed from PE as a result of concussions. Uh, so that's obviously pretty striking. Um, now, a couple of caveats. They had to rely upon data from the athletic directors and trainers. Um, they weren't actually gathering the data themselves, and so so that could mean the data is not ideal. Um, also, there's the fact that the people who are playing the sports might be a little bit fitter, and if you're fitter, um, then that can actually be a protection against concussions. Um, and then finally, <laughs> there could be an intervening variable about over-reporting in PE and under-reporting in sports, because you can imagine like your typical ninth grader who is on the football field, they might get a concussion and they'll try and brush it off and act as if they didn't have a concussion because they want to keep on playing. Whereas their classmate ninth grader might fall down and say, oh, coach, I got a concussion because he wants to get out of PE class. Right. And so literally the psychology of the kid in PE is the opposite of the psychology of the kid playing football. Right. Um, and so that might lead to an over-reporting of concussions in PE and an under-reporting of it in youth sports. Um, like I said, not sure what the takeaway from our listeners. For our policymakers, it's clear. For policymakers, if in fact this is true, and this holds up in other studies, it would suggest that there needs to be a lot more training around concussions and how to avoid them, how to treat them uh, for for PE teachers um, and not just for coaches. Um, but uh, not sure what the takeaway is for our listeners. I mean, what do you think? Thoughts about this one? So I need to start with uh, a bit of a disclaimer. So to those, those of you who don't know me too well, um, I actually worked, did some freelance work for the San Diego Chargers um, which is an NFL, a National Football League team, an NFL team, back in the early 
2010s. So that was right yeah. before or right as this concussion stuff was coming out. Right. Um, so I've, I've read a lot about this mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. This is something that's near and dear to my heart. This is something, um, you know, it's, it's not... For me, these articles are not... When I read about like, concussions in New York Times, they are not a study in a paper. I can see the faces. I can see the collisions. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bit of a different. And you're a feeling. fan too. You're a football fan, right? That was an understatement. <laughs> uh, that is totally an understatement. When I was little, I literally memorized all the players. I loved everything. I was literally reading football textbooks when I was seven, eight years old. Yeah. And like I was a total nerd about it. But a couple of other um, studies that kind of back up what you're saying. So the concussion stuff really came out in 2012, 2013. 2013 was the first NFL season where people started watching and saying, I'm not sure sure about this. Mm-hmm. Um, between 2010 and 2014, the number of um, concussion diagnosis went up 500% in people under the age of 22. Woo! 500%. Okay? And this is based on healthcare insurance claims from 2007 to 2015. Now, we're not all of a sudden running around hitting each other in the heads with baseball right. bats. Right. That is growing awareness. And, right. the, and the real issue with concussions is that people aren't talking, that, that you don't hear people talking about in general. You hear about it a little bit within professional sports, within the athletic community, is kid breaks a leg. Like, you can see it. Like, you kind of mm-hmm. see the bone snap. Like, you right. see, like, you can't walk anymore. The head, right. you don't see it. Right. You don't see the, the torn, you don't, you don't. You don't see the effect. And then what makes it even worse is the athlete themselves don't realize how bad it is because kind of from an evolutionary perspective, you know, the human body was kind of designed to keep going, keep going, keep going. And you can keep going with a head injury. That obviously has horrible side effects down the road. Mm -hmm. But from an evolutionary perspective, we didn't live past 40 anyways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're running from danger... You still got to keep running if you right, can. Right. Um, so that's why it's so much more dangerous because, like, if, you, if you're if you a receiver and you, you break... You can still it, drive home. Yeah, you can still drive home. Yeah. I mean, so, anyways, I feel like I just threw a lot at you. Um, but my reaction is, I think this is just a growing awareness about what can happen and how bad it actually is when you do hit your head. Mm-hmm. Um so any and we've seen this across sports where there's an there's an increase in in concussion claims and not just in sports but in general where mm-hmm. you know the, the kid falls down the stairs or something and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. the parents are like all right we're going to the hospital we're not mm-hmm. putting an ice pack on it anymore. Right. Right. So anyways, I think I've, I feel like I took us down a bit of a dark uh, <laughs> dark alley there. But no, I mean you know may, maybe concussions are something for us to to kind of revisit some other time um, because clearly I do think that they they've moved more into the mainstream consciousness and that, that has a lot to do with with those increased diagnoses that you described there. Um, I think that that I don't and so as as you're talking as I'm continuing to reflect on this this finding I'm trying to think about okay so what does this mean um, just for me and and I guess that that I, I still don't quite know. Because I'm obviously thinking about my sons. Yeah. You know, and, and, and my wife and I have agreed that our sons aren't playing football. Despite, oh, I, despite the yeah. fact that people come up to them because they're so giant all the time. And say, oh, who are you going to play for? Nobody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're going to they're gonna row, maybe, or swim. Um, but they're not going to be football players. Um, but at the same time, okay, so we're going to try and protect them from that. But they're going to take PE. They're going to mm-hmm. do other things. They're certainly going to be rough and tumble. They love to climb on things. Mm-hmm. You know? Um 
Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I encourage our listeners to write me and tell me what the takeaway is here because because I, I don't I don't quite know. Well, there there's several. Uh, I mean, and beyond just football. So the other sport that people are not talking about, which the two with high concussion rates, once again, this is just something I've looked into over several years because of my background, are women's soccer and lacrosse, yeah. men and women. Yeah. And so with soccer, what they said is no, a lot of states are saying no heading the ball before the age of 12. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is a phenomenal yeah. um, adaptation because they just found the ball. So the, so like in, in football, the players get bigger, the hits get harder as you move up the ranks. Right. In soccer, the ball is pretty much the same mm-hmm. size right. from, like, eight years old on. Right. So they found that if they just kind of hold off on heading the ball until the, the kids have started to develop some sort of a neck to kind of help them, mm-hmm. you know, head the ball without their head snapping back, mm-hmm. that really kind of cuts down on concussions. So, so, so the header is actually a header as opposed to just getting hit in the head with the ball. Yeah. Yeah, or at least, you know, once again, it's like, it's as you mentioned, it's going... It, Injuries are going to happen, but we can at right. least eliminate the <laughs> the right. intentional ones, so to speak. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. Um, yeah, you mentioned uh, lacrosse. Uh, I was talking to an ear, nose, and throat doctor one time um, about, because I had my nose broken when I was breaking up a fight when I was a high school teacher. Oh, <laughs> um, nice. And uh, and he was talking about... Um, By the way, you can tell the truth. You were in the fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> kid, this, yeah, I was so tired of him not turning in his homework. <laughs> And, and I figured he needed a, a, some other way of my communicating the message. Um, but uh, he, because, you know, physically, I'm very intimidating. <laughs> you know, we don't call you the intimidator for no reason. That's right. Um, but, uh, but he was telling me that, that broken noses are exceedingly common in girls' field hockey. Yeah. Because they don't, because in lacrosse, you wear the full mask. Yeah. He said in field hockey, that ball is moving as fast as it does in lacrosse, even though it's supposed to say on the carpet it doesn't. Um, and all they wear is goggles. And so yeah. their nose are just out there. Yeah. And and he said they're constantly taking sticks to the face or balls to the face or elbows to the face or something else like that um, that, uh, that end up in, with broken noses. Um, all right. Once again, why don't you give us a better piece of news? Or better so piece of I'll, news? I'll actually <laughs> transition us a little bit. Um, so... In 2015, a an NFL middle linebacker who was like who was in his rookie year, and I think he actually won like defensive rookie of the year. His name was Chris Borland. He retired because he read about the CTE stuff and said, oh, "That's yeah. it. I'm done. I don't want to do this. This isn't worth it." And of all things, and he kind of became he was the first NFL player who had a choice and walked away. Yeah. Right. He didn't retire because nobody wanted him. He retired because he actually didn't want to do it. Right. And. Since then, he has actually turned to long-distance running to kind of fulfill his competitive personality. So he ran his first marathon. It was the San Francisco Marathon. He did about four and a half hours. And he's also run the half-marathon portion of some triathlon relays. So I mm-hmm. thought that was actually pretty interesting. And he, For sure. And if you look at look him up in some articles, he said he loves it because, you know, it's, it's still very competitive. You still have to kind of grit through a lot of obstacles. You have to kind of have that... that tough persona mm-hmm. but the difference is like you're sore after a marathon but then you recover mm-hmm. a couple weeks later yeah you know yeah. so as, as, as opposed to you know having early onset alzheimer's at age 47 or you know. right yeah. so anyway so to go from the sad to the happy um <laughs> and, and to talk about running and its effect on kind of mental health um a recent study found regular running produces the same brain changes that are thought to be behind the effectiveness of Antidepressants. Yay, yay. 
which I thought was fantastic. So a review of research published in Clinical Psychology Review concluded that exercise training, and I'm quoting here, um, exercise training recruits a process which confers enduring resilience to stress. Um, and they, they thought this happened for several reasons. Because um, running is thought to be responsible for the effectiveness, um, you know, in kind of that antidepressant uh, reaction because it increases the level of the neurotransmitters, serotonin, mm-hmm. which is obviously the, the happiness hormone, so to right. speak. And I have no idea how to say this, um, the creation of new neurons kind of throughout the brain. Okay. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, they, they also said that it has to do with, um, it builds kind of what they call the miracle grow uh, protein within the brain, mm-hmm. which is kind of what helps build those neurons throughout the brain and kind mm-hmm. of helps you fire off more regularly and kind of keep that brain activity high, mm-hmm. which is what you want to kind of be happy. So the more activity, the better, so to speak, mm-hmm. within the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, uh, I'm just kind of reading through some of the quotes here. Um, Dr. John Rattay, who's a Harvard psychiatrist, has said there's a crucial link between thought, emotions, and move, like physical movement itself, mm-hmm. which I thought that was interesting because, in a way, that's something I feel like coaches have been saying for 50 years. I mean, you mm-hmm. can go back to Bill Bowerman saying... You know, if you're sad, go for a nice jog. You know, mm-hmm. there's something to be said for oh, yeah. the connection between mind and body. And they're you just can, almost proving it on a... You can go back to your favorite, the ancient Greeks. The ancient, <laughs> so, so, I mean, because you, you remember the, 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 the word gymnasium is an old Greek word, mm-hmm. um, but, it, but it's around healing. So, like, the, the, when, when people were sick back in the day, um, their medicine would be to, to do a bunch of exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so so the 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 healing benefits of of, of exercise. For sure. Yeah, and it goes back to our original topic about like goal setting, right? If you set the goal, I want to be happier. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, but you almost have to set the, kind of the indirect goal of, well, I'm going to exercise more. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try this route, which will kind of mm-hmm. make I shouldn't say make me happier because I'm not a um, psychiatrist, but it will kind of lead to you know better well-being or maybe a happier persona. Resilience to stress is the word that you used a minute ago, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that makes you more stress-resilient. Um, and I think that's so interesting because because um, because so many people do, you like you just said, so many people have always kind of used exercise, oh, this is my stress reliever. Yes. That sort of thing. And so this is essentially, uh, essentially research that suggests that, yeah, there actually is a stress-relieving property of exercise. Um, the harder part, as I said before, is that is that yeah? It's a it's a stress reliever, but you're but it also creates stress. Yes. And so so there's this kind of sweet spots you have to find, I guess, mm-hmm. of of doing enough exercise that it relieves your stress, but it doesn't actually add to the cortisol in your blood, and doesn't doesn't actually create more stress that your body then has to try and process. So, um, yeah, interesting piece. But I mean, yet 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 another long piece of re- or yet, yet another piece of research in a long line of research that we've talked about over the course of the last year here in which uh, shows all these benefits of running and, and exercise was it runners that they did or was it just sort of general fitness uh, runners okay um, and so this was also not so much a new study as much as they collected a this was a meta review of many different okay. studies that was conducted study, yeah, we've talked about those before um, and it, here's a couple interesting parts too that really build off your point. So they found that most studies find a significant boost after 30 minutes of running. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to run a marathon. You don't have to run a half marathon. It can and just you, be... And, and you probably shouldn't. Yeah. It's 30 minutes of running is kind of where you start to see the benefit. Mm-hmm. Also, in terms of pace, 
the, the greatest mood boosts come from about 70 to 80% of your maximum heart rate if you're running at that pace. Okay. So for those of you who don't know, that's kind of a rough, steady-state, conversational pace, right? So it's the high end of your, of your, of your easy pace. Right. Yeah, it's, like, a, it's a brisk pace. Right. And I've, I've told people before, you should feel better at the end of an easy run than you did before it. Mm-hmm. Voila. <laughs> there we go, right, right here. And this is why, because it's not putting the physiological stress, but it is helping you feel better it's letting you kind of relieve some tension. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also noted, and this is also important, you do have to be generally fit to receive the benefits of running. Uh-huh. So I know I have heard you say many times before, and I've stolen this mantra. <laughs> from, from, I've actually I stole like it literally earlier this week. Yeah. You've said, there's nothing harder than, or, no, you say it. I, I said, there's, there's nothing worse than running when you're not in shape, and there's nothing better than running when you're in shape. There you go. Yeah. Straight, straight from the uh, the horse's mouth of the yeah. The no, wise it's, one it's, it's it's funny you mention that because I was about to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so very good. Which Great. makes sense too, right? Because conversely, if someone said that weightlifting, you know, boosts your mental health, I'd be like, you know, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I can't say it's helped me all that right. much. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we're just not fit enough. Maybe we just need to get stronger. Ah. If, if, if we go to the weight room more, we'll get that base level of weight room fitness. That will make weight lifting awesome. Yeah, maybe or maybe we need some yeah, that albuterol or whatever. Yeah, that guy yeah. Was. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah I, I did get. Uh, I have some short term resolutions related around doing chin ups, but maybe I'll talk about that in the next. Really? Podcast. Yeah, yeah. Can we go from one to two or what? <laughs> <laughs> maybe from 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 zero to to to, to, to one half. Um, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so today, here uh, on our last podcast of 2017, uh, uh, Patrick and I decided to talk about our favorite workouts. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was thinking, actually, and we were talking about this just prior to hit and record, that, that you know, this, this kind of falls in line with the stuff we've been talking about. So, so you know, last time we said, okay, these are the essential things that, that, that endurance runners need to have. Um, and, and these are all favorite running workouts, by the way, since I've been doing mostly running over the course of the past couple of years, and, and Patrick is a runner. Um, but, but certainly, you know, there, there, there are benefits for, for triathletes doing the, these running workouts as well. But um, anyway, we wanted to say, okay, what exactly is a favorite workout, right? Yeah. And so, so I, I guess here at the outset, we need to actually define favorite. So how would you define favorite, Patrick? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would say a couple things. One, when I think of my favorite workouts, I think of workouts that are a staple of my training mm-hmm. throughout the or have been staples of my training throughout the year, mm-hmm. and have been workouts that I would recommend to just about anybody. Mm-hmm. Right? Obviously, there's some variability. You know, not we're not all the exact same person, but they're they're workouts that I regularly recommend to other people to incorporate mm-hmm. into their own training because because they have a good benefit or. Well, for several reasons. One, from a physiological perspective, they help. You, they really help target a, a certain yeah. physiological change that we want to see from a workout, that we want to improve to make somebody a better endurance athlete. Yeah. And then from a psychological perspective, they help you kind of slay the beast, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. They help you say, okay, you know what? It's mile 18 of a marathon. I'm dying. I'm not sure I can do this. But you know what? I made it through these workouts, mm-hmm. so I know I can make it through this. Yeah. I think that, that, that yeah, that's kind of similar to, to when I was thinking about favorite. And the reason why I feel like we need to define it is because, you know, Patrick and I both run a lot, and we both say, oh, yeah, we like running. And we do like running. We mm-hmm. like being runners. Um, we enjoy But 
But that being said, you know, if, if, if you were to catch one or both of us down at the river doing a workout, we're not going to be like smiling and laughing as we're doing it, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so we are not Instagram posts. Yeah, and it's it's not <laughs> it's not fun necessarily. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, right. you know, and I'll say a race was fun, but you know what? It wasn't really fun in the traditional sense of fun. You know, it wasn't fun the way that you know going on a roller coaster is fun. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I think that's one of the unique things about endurance sports. And so when I think about favorite, it doesn't mean the most fun necessarily, but it means the ones that, like you suggested for me, it means that, that um, the ones that I feel like are going to help me the most, mm-hmm. um, the ones that I feel like pay the biggest dividends come race day. Um, and then also it's the ones that when I'm reflecting on them during the cool down, that I'm like, that was a really good workout. I feel proud of that. I feel good about myself. I feel good about what I just did. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've said before, and, and a few people kind of kind of uh, pushed back on this on Facebook when I said this, that I really, I think cool downs are the best part of running. Yeah. Like cooling down after a good workout is the best part of running. Um, and, and other people are like, I hate cool downs, or I never even get to do a cool down. Um, and, and for me, though, the reason why I like them so much is because I like, after a good hard workout, taking that time and just reflecting on, wow. I am awesome. Mm-hmm. I am a badass. I cannot believe how fast I just ran. You know, I, I like that. That's, that's a big part of, of the enjoyment of running for me. And so when I think about my favorite workouts, these are workouts that I can look back on and say, wow, that was really good. Mm-hmm. That was a really impressive workout. So, so yeah, kind of like what you said, the, the ones that I think give me the most benefit um, and the ones that make me feel best about myself as a runner. Right. Um, so... Top three. We're going to go with our top three, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Going to go top three, th- starting with three and then counting down to our so, so you're actually doing it as a straight-up countdown. You're getting into the New Year's feel. Yeah. All right. See, because I, I, so. I, I can't necessarily say that this is like my third most favorite, my second most favorite, but, but Patrick's going to do it. So, yeah, you do it. So, so what's your third most favorite workout? Okay. Mine is the medium long run. All right. And this, that's all, this one's probably one of my favorites because... In a way, this was a term I had never heard of as a high school or collegiate runner mm-hmm. when you're training for 5Ks, miles, etc. Mm-hmm. But looking back, we actually did medium long runs probably three times a week or so in college. Mm-hmm. So what a medium long run is, is it's a 60 to 85 minute run mm-hmm. at an easy pace. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an easy, comfortable, long run effort without quite the same distance as a long run. So it doesn't kind of knock you off your feet the same way that a long run does. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, the medium long runs are the unsung hero of a good marathon training cycle. I, I agree with that. Um, at ITL, we host what, what you might consider a medium long run on Thursday morning at Brookhaven. Whether that's what people call it or not, you know, that's kind of what it, the, the bucket it kind of fits into. And what a medium long run does is it helps you build an aerobic base uh, in a way that maybe an easy run can't quite or a VO2 max workout can't quite. So we talked about on the last podcast how... In order to first, first of all, the most important component to build when you're running a marathon or when you're training for a marathon is to build up that aerobic endurance, right? That's really the base. That's where most of your training should be focused. Um, if you run too fast, now you're getting into lactate threshold and aerobic capacity. So what the medium long run does is it really, it's at a slow enough pace that allows your body to um, work on burning fat instead of burning carbohydrates for energy. And it kind of helps you build up that base, you know, aerobically so that you can, you know, build those capillaries throughout the system. So it helps you kind of transform yourself from the inside out so that you can get oxygen to those muscles very efficiently. And you kind of have a super highway or, or a network of super highways throughout your, from your 
lungs to your legs or your heart to your legs to kind of um, help you power you through the end of the race. But the difference is, whereas a long run is something you can only do maybe once a week, a medium long run you can do several times a week after several years of training. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say is my third favorite uh, workout. That's uh, not what I was expecting you to say, but I think it's a good point. Uh, you know, we talked about also in the last podcast about how if you were to map out the endurance benefits of a run, uh, just, just on a line graph, you know, they sort of steadily build over time, and then they make this huge leap between mm-hmm. 60 minutes and 90 minutes. Yeah. And so when you're talking about a medium-long run, you're basically talking about a run that falls into that big leap area. Yes. Right? And so you don't need to, for a medium-long run, to go more than 90 minutes. If no. you start doing that, you're starting to get into long-run territory. Right. Um, and so so you're talking about an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 20 minutes, something like that. Um, I often will give athletes uh, a medium-long run on Thursdays. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then they have so they have the long run on Sunday and then they'll have a medium long run on Thursday um, and usually it's about like 80 minutes or something like that um, another kind of piece of advice I'll often give people about that is if, if I have if I if somebody comes to me and says oh yeah I'm running an hour a day five days a week or something like that and I'm trying to increase my endurance I'll say take two of those runs and just add 15 minutes to them Mm-hmm. And so, so you push them out of just sort of a regular day-to-day run into that medium-long run territory mm-hmm. by, by making them to be 75 to 80 minutes or something like that. And, and the endurance benefits that you can get just by increasing those runs, 15 minutes, are immense. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're far greater than the ones you would get from increasing your long run from 2 hours to 2 hours and 30 minutes. Yeah. And um, the risk is substantially exactly. lower. Yeah. The injury totally. risk is substantially lower. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so, so so I'm glad you said that one because I, I, I agree with you on that one. I think that's a good one. And I want to add one more quick point, too. It's just in my kind of talking to folks, you know, as you mentioned talking to people who maybe just do five days a week of one hour or maybe they hit the extremes of track workout and long runs. Mm-hmm. To me, medium long runs are kind of the secret weapon mm-hmm. to any great marathon training plan. They're not as attractive as a long run or a track workout. They're, they're much more kind of consistent from week to week. Mm-hmm. But they're kind of the silent miles that you need to put in, you know, outside of the glamour of a track workout or a mm-hmm. long run that really help you build a good aerobic base mm-hmm. and also kind of prepare your legs for um, just being on your feet for that long, right you know, for a marathon. Not only when you train for a marathon, not only do you have to kind of build up that aerobic endurance, but you also have to kind of build up a biomechanical base as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, you know, throughout the marathon, you know, you accumulate muscle damage as you continue to run and can, you continue to run. Mm-hmm. But these medium long runs help your body prepare, okay, this is what it's like to be on my feet mm-hmm. for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And it kind of helps you build you up structurally from the inside out. There's a mental aspect well. to it too. There's a mental aspect to it as well. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, that running for an hour, I always say an hour is where a run becomes like really a run. Yes. Um, and and but running for an hour, okay, you run for an hour. Running for an hour and twenty minutes, that's harder than that, that's harder than running for an hour. I mean, and I realize that it sounds kind of like well, duh, yeah. you know, it's 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 thirty percent longer. Um, but but that last twenty minutes requires of you um, a mental toughness that at least remotely approximates what you're going to have to do in your in your your triathlon or in your in your running race. Um, and so so I think that that it helps on the mental aspect as well. So anyway. Um, we're going to move on, but, but, but yeah, medium long runs, myriad benefits that you might not necessarily think of just by adding 20 minutes to, to one of your runs. Right. Um, 
All right, so mine, uh, I guess the first one I'll mention here, and, and, and mine are not in countdown order like Patrick's because um, Patrick's better than I am, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but but uh, the first nobody give, ever. Uh, the first one I'll give is is uh, what I would call 1,600-400. Um, and 1,600-400 and are, are sets of, of where you do a 1,600 uh, at about 5K pace to, 10, to 10K pace, and then you do like rest for two or three minutes you might jog a lap around the track or if that's where you're doing it uh, and then you do a 400 at mile of 3k pace uh, and then you do a shorter rest only about maybe maybe two minutes or something like that and then you do another 1600 another 400 another 1600 and so, so, you, so you're going back and forth between 5k 10k pace and mile of 3k pace um i i like this workout for a variety of reasons i think that that switching gears like that is a really good thing to do um I think that that mentally it helps me break it apart by actually going 1600 400 1600 400 rather than just doing all 1600s or all 400s. Um even even when I do like straight up 1600s or straight up 400s, I try and break them into pieces because yeah. just to make them more digestible. Uh, so if I'm doing like 2400s, I'll do, I won't do 2400s, I'll do four sets of 5, you know, or something like that. Um but um the thinking in terms of the systems, um this is a more of a VO2 max type workout. Um, and so it's something that you would do if you were trying to hone your VO2 max system, which regardless of the race that distance you're doing or whatever, whatever it is, that is a system that you need to work on. It just, depending on what the race is, depends on when in the cycle and, and how much you need to work on your VO2 max. Um, in addition, um, like most hard, fast workouts, it works on your efficiency. Um, it, it helps you to run, uh, more efficiently, i.e. run faster with a smaller amount of, of fuel. Um, and it starts to touch into your, your lactate threshold system a little bit, um, mm-hmm. just by virtue of having the longer 1600 there um, at 5K to 10K pace. And then, of course, the, just the accumulation over the course of the workout, after you've done three to four sets of this, um, it starts to, to, to really pull on your LT system as well. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, generally, of workouts. Um, and anybody who comes to the Tuesday morning track workouts knows mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of workouts in which you run more than one pace during the workout. Yeah. Like, you don't run every single one at the same pace. You, you run, you're, you're running 5k pace for some 10k pace for some, tempo runs for others, mile pace for others. I'm a big fan of, of, of kind of mixing up paces. Um, and so, so yeah, this is one of my favorites, 1600, Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting too, I, cause I, I gotta say, I don't know if I've ever met anybody as big of a fan as mixing up the paces as you. <laughs> and at, at first it was very different when I started going to the track workouts, but then I found I really liked it because in a way it simulated, simulated the race. Mm-hmm much more than I realized because mm-hmm. we talk about, okay, I want to run this pace. So it's, you know, th- this average per mile, but how many times are you actually averaging exactly that per mile? Or you may average that per mile, but within the race, right. you know, if you look at like your Strava graph, it's mm-hmm. a lot of up and down. It's a lot of bobbing up and down. It's a lot mm-hmm. of surges. It's a lot of surge the downhill, survive mm-hmm. the uphill or vice versa. Try to keep up with this one guy as he tries to run. Right. Yeah. Hey, there's a peop- group of people cheering for me, and I'm going to blow right by them and look great <laughs> as they take the picture. Not that I've ever done that. Um, and so I really, lo- I, I just, I, I love that idea, um, and I think that is especially the case if you're racing at a high level where it's like, all right, it's me and these two other people. Mm-hmm. Who cares what time is? The only, mm-hmm. the only thing that matters is that I finish in front of this person. So mm-hmm. if they go at mile nine, I'm going with them. Mm-hmm. And if they don't go at nine, hey, you know what? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll wait for somebody to to, to break it wide open. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I I submit that that approaching racing that way, um, ultimately the times are going to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you go out there and you really compete, 
um, the times are going to take care of themselves. Right. Um, yeah. All right, your number two. My number two, kind of along the same lines. Um, so this one, I kind of got this idea from from the Greg McMillan, but it's the fast finish long run. Oh, man, fast finish long run was the next one I was going to say. Ha <laughs> beat you to it. Oh, so it's well known. I see you should have, should have gone and count down. I know, order. right? I it. So, so it's a, this still would have been number two here. So wait, so that, oh wait, yeah, there it is. Does, does that mean I have to actually come up with another one right now, or does that mean that, that we can just both talk about the fast finish long run? I we can just both talk about the this, fast finish long run. So this is what we get for trying to be spontaneous. Yeah, um, I know, right? The college <laughs> professor, we're just not so good at it. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, so we, most folks are familiar with the long runs. You know, it's kind of a steady long run where you go out and you say, "All right, I'm going to run." two hours, an hour and a half, you know, wherever you are in the training plan. Um, and those really help build up the physiological response you need to run a good marathon, right? I mean, when you look at what's required to run a good marathon, obviously the thing anybody knows, whether they're a novice or not, is that marathons are very long. The first thing you need to be a good marathon runner is to be able to survive on your feet for two-plus hours, mm-hmm. um, if not more, and so, but so that's what the steady state long run does. Is it really builds up the physiological response you need um, in in that workout. Now, but the problem with the steady long run, in my opinion, is it's easy, great, easy, easy, steady. So, yeah. So so like just a long run that you just go out and do a long run, right? Right. So just making sure those terms, easy and steady. I found that, and this is this is the triathlete coach of me talking. I found that they mean different things in different sports. Like, Interesting. Like, like easy, easy in running means steady in swimming really or, or, or that, that's that's the way they use the word yeah i guess that makes um, sense because in swimming you're having like you're moving through like a body of water so like it's steady has a bit of a different i guess it's a bit more yeah. descriptive than yeah yeah but 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 like but what, what i would call an easy run um in in swimming they call that steady what i would call a jog in swimming they call easy hmm so so yeah so so just you know and, and for the for the sake of terminology and, and being clear on that yeah when 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 you're going out for just your regular old long run mm-hmm. so when you're going out for 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 that 16 mile long run that that two hour run that 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 um you know whatever whether you're going by distance or by time that the Patrick's just describing generally speaking your long runs don't need to be any faster than your just your regular day in day out easy runs right um and so so but what he's about to describe is is a tweak to the tail end of a long run where you do actually run a little bit faster than your your pace. So anyway, so called fast finish long run. Take it away. Yeah. So and well, and to kind of build on your, your point too, the reason you want to keep it at that easy run pace mm-hmm. is because the primary purpose of a long run is to increase your body's ability to burn fat efficiently and store more glycogen. So if you run too fast, your body's going to start to to burn carbohydrates instead of fat. And that is a completely different energy source than what you want to train your body to use for the marathon. Right. So that's why, from a physiological perspective, you really need to keep your long runs easy, yeah. right? And, and, and that's something that, and we've talked about this before, that's something that people who are training for marathons have a really hard time wrapping their minds around. Yes. That, that okay, I'm trying to run a marathon at nine-minute pace, and so I'm going to go out and run, my long runs also need to be at nine-minute pace. Right? How can I expect to run 26 miles at nine minute pace if I'm training by going out and running 15 miles at 10 minute pace? Like, mm-hmm. how does that work? Right. I, I, I can appreciate that that doesn't make logical sense. Right. Or, or I guess maybe what I can say is I can appreciate the logical sense that it makes to say I need to do all my long runs at marathon pace. Right. I can appreciate that. Um, 
But that being said, it's not it's not physiologically sound. <laughs> that, that, that your long run is one component of your training and you're building your endurance during your long run and you'll work on all those other things which all come together on race day through your other workouts throughout the course of the week. Um, and that, yeah, every now and then doing long segments at marathon pace or doing a fast finish long run, as Patrick's about to describe, is really really worthwhile. Um, but, but for the vast majority of your long runs that you do during a marathon build or during an Ironman build, um, or any other build, a 10K, obviously you do a marathon as well, um, or you do a, you do a long run as well. Um, it should always be at, at a conversational pace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, keep going. So that's physio. Yeah. So that's physiologically why you need to keep the long run at a slower pace. But then the issue I always have with nothing but the long, steady long run is that then it doesn't prepare you for that, that kind of race mentality. Mm Mm-hmm at the end of a two-hour session, right? So I like the fast-finish long run because, A, it kind of reminds you why you're doing this, you know, Mm -hmm. mentally. Mm -hmm. And it also allows you to get most of the same physiological benefits if you do the first 15 miles at that steady pace, for Mm -hmm. example, and then you do the last two or three miles at that Mm -hmm. faster pace. Mm -hmm. So to kind of, you know, offer folks perspective on what we mean on what a fast-finish run run. run. Yeah, what it is is, what it means is, you run the first 75% or so of the run at that long, steady pace. Mm-hmm. And then you finish the last you know, 10 to 20 minutes or so. Well, that's actually not true. We would say maybe the last three to six miles or so, two to six miles at a quick pace. Mm-hmm. So that means maybe like a half marathon pace. And then you, you build up to like mm-hmm. where you're really gunning towards the final mile to, to yeah. ride as fast as you can. Well, it, it depends. I mean, there's lots of different ways to do it. And the way that, that I most often prescribe is exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. That, 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 like, say you have a 120-minute run, a two-hour run. Yeah. You would do the first 80 minutes of that at your regular long run, easy slash steady pace. Um, and so you're just going to go on out, you're being in conversation, or you're running the same pace that you do for, for every other easy run. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not pushing the pace. But then from 80 to 90, mm-hmm. you pick up the pace 30 seconds a mile. So you're not killing it yet. But you're picking it up to to a pretty fast pace. It's uncomfortable. Right? Yeah. It's, it starts to get uncomfortable. You don't want to talk anymore. You right. could, but you don't really want to anymore. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then from ninety to one hundred minutes, then you pick it up to like that tempo pace. Mm-hmm. Right. And so 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 you pick it up to to now that comfortably uncomfortable pace where you really can't speak more than a word at a time. Mm-hmm. Right. And and plus you know you're still carrying in ninety minutes worth of fatigue. And so 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 you're doing that. And then from from 90 to 110, you pick it up even a little bit faster, like to 10K pace. Uh, and then in that last five minutes from, from 110 to 115, you run the best five minutes that you possibly can run. You, 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 you run as fast as you possibly can. And then you take the last five minutes to cool down, right? Um, and so that kind of gradually getting faster over the course of 35 minutes um, or something like that after having run 80 minutes, not all that fast, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that's kind of the typical way to do it, mm-hmm. traditional way of doing it. A couple other ways. Um, uh, Khalid Kanuchi, mm-hmm. um, you remember him? Yes. He was a Moroccan born American, uh, uh, distance runner. He was a, set the world record at Chicago in like 2004 or something like that. Um, um, was the American record holder for a while. Um, he, um, it's still the American record holder actually. Um, he, uh, if you don't count Ryan Hall's Boston, um, he, uh, 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 used to do these fast finish long runs where he would do a long run and then he would finish at a track and he would put on his his racing flats and he would run the fastest 5k he could possibly run mm-hmm. um, and he would do it in like 1430 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's a world record holder. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, just, just running a super hard, super fast 5K at the finish. Uh, and then one other thing that I often will give people as well um, is, is I'll say, in the, in the second half of the run, do six by 400 at 10k pace mm-hmm. and so they'll do six four so they'll surge for for 400 meters at 10k pace or for you know two minutes or whatever it happens to be and they'll back off for two minutes and then do it for another so, so you do some surges in the back half of a long run as well all those are kind of different variations on right finish long runs the the real key is you do roughly two-thirds three-quarters at that mm-hmm. steady pace and yeah. then you pick it up at the end right and then the other thing i like so we talk about how it kind of gives you that mental on preparation for the race. Yeah, these are hard, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to be mowing the grass at the yeah, end of this yeah. race. The, the, the uh, long, fast finish long runs are tough. Um, yeah, keep going. And so, yeah, and on that same note, work in recovery days to several after the fast finish long yeah. run. I also like using the fast finish long runs to kind of have a dress rehearsal for the race itself. So yeah. A lot of times I'll run in the same outfit I plan to run in. Yeah. The marathon, I'll have the goose ready mm-hmm. so I can practice taking them at the right iterations. Mm-hmm. I'll run in the same shoes. That way I can I may figure out, wait a minute, these shoes, do right. not, they work great for an hour, but then, boy, do they blister at right. two hours or something Absolutely. like that. And the fast finish long run is a great kind of dress rehearsal to set yourself up for mm-hmm. a good marathon so you yeah. don't find out that the you know berry flavored goose give you tummy aches or something right, right. on race day that yeah. you you know that kind of heading into it right on yeah totally um, so as far as like what they do for you and in addition to those practical things which are super important the mental parts of it which are super important um, they also train from a physiological place a physical place they train whatever system you're asking it to use mm-hmm. uh, and so if you're if you're uh, going at five k pace or faster if you're doing that that hardest you can possibly run 5k at the finish one that's kind of drawing on your 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 vo2 system if you're if you're doing two or three tempo miles at the end of your long run that's drawing on your lt system right and so 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 there's the system that you're asking your body to use that's one thing that you're using and but more importantly or or better than just using it you're actually asking your body to use it when you're tired Right, um, and so so it trains your body to be able to to use your your VO two system or your LT system, despite the fact that it's already fatigued. Right, um, and so so it it helps your body to be able to sort of switch gears physiologically uh, in the latter stages of a race. Um, I think more importantly than that, though, the other thing it does for you is efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, it it teaches your body to run fast when you're tired. Mm-hmm. Um, it it. You know, we had talked about uh, strength training. We've talked about strides and that sort of thing on this part po- uh, on this podcast before. Of, of you should do strides after your long run because that that helps your neuromuscular system know the way it should be running when it's tired, so that when it defaults into a particular stride pattern at the latter stages of a race, it defaults into a very efficient one. And so that's why you do strides at the end of your long runs. This is the same sort of thing that that you you, you when you start running faster. You start running more efficiently, and and you're training your body when tired to run more efficiently, um, and that can save you legions of energy and make you go significantly faster in the late stages of any race, regardless of the, of the distance of that race. Right. Yeah. Right. And it, you know that's what makes marathon running unique too. Is you know in most sports, like a pitcher is throwing a baseball a zillion times, but a marathon runner, your body has only run that fatigued so many times mm-hmm. in its life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, fast finish long runs. They're hard. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I did one when I was training for New York, I did one and just to make it just, just the, that much more fatigue, I actually did a, a fairly long run on a Friday mm-hmm. and then went back into a half marathon on Saturday. 
Um, and so, so I did, so that warm up and I do the half marathon, I run the first six miles or so of the half marathon at just my regular old pace. Right. I ran the next three or so miles at my marathon goal pace. Um, and then I ran the last three of miles of it as fast as I could. The last mm-hmm. 5k of, of, of this half marathon, you know, the Dalton red carpet half marathon, right. um, when I was getting ready for New York. And so it was kind of like a fast finish long run with even extra fatigue because I had done that longer run the day before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was a really, really, it was, it was one of my last things I did two weeks out. Um, and I think that it was really, really, um, worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I also say too, one final point about the fast finish long runs. I don't know if you and I ever did any official fast finish long runs. <laughs> when we were training for Chicago, True, yeah. but let's be honest. We definitely had a few where, uh, yeah. we were moving rather quickly at the end. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that that kind of made it more fun. Um, yeah, you know, because on our run, usually we hit a big hill with about two two and a half miles left, mm-hmm. and it kind of became a tradition at the end. That yeah. once we got up that hill, it was Fitting, fittingly enough every I, man for himself. Until I, I, the end. I call that hill the make your move hill. Mm-hmm. Actually, call it that. Just really, not because I plan to make a move on you when we're out for runs, but but because of where it's located mm-hmm. in 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 a run when you're doing a long run out there from the visitor center at Kennesaw Mountain, you have that you know a little bit over two miles or right about two miles out, um, and you kind of push up that hill, and then you just kind of maintain that effort level, mm-hmm. and not for nothing by the way, that's actually the strategy that I often suggest for people in Boston, mm-hmm. is that that you kind of hold yourself back until you get to Heartbreak Hill. Yes. Yeah, which is in in the twenty first mile. Yeah, um, and it, it crests right at the twenty one mile mark. And you sort of the first time you should really kind of dig and push a little bit is going up Heartbreak Hill, and then you crest Heartbreak Hill and you just keep that effort level high. Mm-hmm. That 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 to me is the winning strategy for 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 the Boston Marathon. Um, it's easier said than done. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, all right, so my turn again. Um, and this is actually my third one since uh, we kind of collaborated there on number two. But it actually works out okay. Good thing you went first. Yeah. So you'll go first, I'll go second, you go third, Whatever. I go fourth, then you, you'll wrap this up. All right, so it works out okay. See? Totally good. Um, all right, so my third one, and this is actually similar to the fast finish long run in terms of the reason why you do it. Um, but but my third one is is a little bit more nonspecific. It's more of a type of workout, and, and it's what I call a post-strength run. Mm. Um, uh, and it's basically any sort of run that you would do after a strength workout. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, the way that this essentially works is that you go to the gym, you warm up a little bit on the rower or even jog on the treadmill or on one of the exercise bikes for, you know, five, 10 minutes, something like that, just simply a warm up. Uh, and then you, you do just a regular old strength session. Now I don't mean like a strength session where you're hurrying from place to place and all that sort of thing. I mean, you actually sit down and you not sit down, but you, <laughs> we, we actually, you know, do the, the, the regular weightlifting. You take the rest between the sets and all that sort of thing, just like you normally would. Um, and so, um, and then following the strength session, um, within, you know, half an hour or so when you're doing the strength session, uh, you actually do a run. Um, now you can do just a regular easy run. And, and if this is your first time doing it, that's actually what I suggest. Um, because, because you need to become kind of familiar with this feeling, um, because it's a different sort of tiredness that, you know, been doing leg extensions and squats and that sort of thing. And then so now you're trying to run. Um, that's hard. Once you've kind of gotten accustomed to it, you can actually start doing workouts where you do, you know, three minutes hard and, and two minutes easy or something like that. You know, um, I often have people do it and I always do it on the treadmill because, you know, you go to the gym, they have all these weight machines, you do all the weight machines, then you hop on the treadmill uh, and you're able to do it there. Interestingly enough, a coach I had a couple of years ago, uh, a guy named Matthew Rose from Dynamo Multisport, I had just started doing these sorts of runs 
And then he became my coach, and this was like a hallmark of his program. Yeah. <laughs> and so it actually really worked out well. Um, but um, but so hopping on the treadmill and doing some sort of some sort of workout immediately after doing the strength work. Now, similar to what I just described with fast finish long run, it draws on whatever system you're asking to use. So mm-hmm. be it LT if you're doing some sort of uh, 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 lactate threshold workout or VO2 max or, or something like that. Um, uh, but you're, you're, you're adding the benefit of using them when, they're, when you're tired. Right, uh, and so so you've 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 tired out your legs um, by by uh, by the strength work um, and your core by doing the strength work and everything else by doing the strength work, um, and now you're having to use these systems when your body's tired, um, and then it also works with that efficiency thing for mm-hmm. the same reason. Um, you, you tire yourself out, and then you you try and run efficiently. You try and run fast, and and your body learns to run efficiently despite the fact that it's very tired. Mm-hmm. Um, now the caveat to this. There's a few caveats. The first one that Patrick can appreciate is that you have to go lift weights. <laughs> so, so you can't really do a post-strength run unless you're willing to do strength work. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, so, so that's one caveat, I suppose. But but it's worth saying that within the past 10 years, I think that's been a profound change mm-hmm. in in distance running. I think that the, the, the new generation, the next generation of distance runners are not as as averse to strength training as you and I have been. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I was in the middle of that generation of runners that, that doesn't, it's like, oh, strength training, I don't know. And I think you're on the tail end of it. Yeah, because um, I think it started with Alan Webb. Like, he was the first mm-hmm. that did it right and okay. showed it could work. And he's and he's in between, he's almost right in between your I, age. Yeah, I think he was a freshman in college, like, my sophomore year in high school or something okay. like that. right on. So, right. you can tell it's like his effect hadn't. Yeah. spread until yeah. I was gone. Yeah, and then it starts to ripple out a little bit right. from that. Yeah, so so I think that like collegiate runners now are much more comfortable doing strength work and, and probably much more comfortable being in the, in the weight room and yeah. are not looking for excuses not to do their, their weight workouts. Um, and then the flip the side of that work. is the first generation of weightlifters, what, what a lot of collegiate coaches did is they said, let's hire the football coach to come in here. Yeah. And that's obviously not yeah. a good strategy because right. it's right. two very different yeah. types of weightlifting. No, totally. Um, and so, so and yeah, I, I remember very well when I was at Georgia Tech, uh, the strength coaches – it kind of felt like they were just sort of making it up as they went along, as right. far as like what lifts we needed to be able to do. They were different from the sprinters. For the sprinters, they 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 seem to be pretty on point with them. But for distance sprinters, they're kind of like, uh, I don't know, why don't you swing your legs a little bit? Yeah, <laughs> uh, and let's put some ankle weights on you or something, you know. And so it was just sort of um, there just wasn't a lot of that. But but I think that that strength work is is I think one of the big changes over the course of the past five to ten years um, that that most coaches will recommend it and most athletes of the, the newest generation are accustomed to doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's actually some new research on strength training right now. Now, the the, the classic study on, on, on strength training um, basically showed that that if you wanted to, that, that basically endurance training interfered with strength training, but strength training didn't interfere with endurance training. And so, so uh, and it was believed that it had to do with, with uh, some hormones that were released and all that sort of thing. But, if you lift weights and then you run afterwards, or for that matter, if you run before and then you lift weights, that's going to influence how much strength gains you get from your endurance training or from from your strength training. Um, however, if you strength train before or after an endurance run, it's not going to influence the endurance benefits that you mm-hmm. actually get from endurance. Um, the newest research on it actually suggests that maybe it doesn't have to do with hormones, that maybe it has to do with calories. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of other things, um, and and it suggests that that maybe the order doesn't matter as much as we once thought it did, um, but but we'll see. 
um, one way or another. Um, I think that that still the big takeaway is that that if you want to to have standalone strength gains, you need to probably separate your strength runs or your your post strength runs. You need you need to do a a a straight up weight session, a straight up strength session that stands alone that you don't then interfere with via um, via an endurance component. Uh, but anyway, back to post strength runs. I think that they're super worthwhile. Um, and and uh, do yeah, you? I, it's interesting. So, are you saying build up some maybe in, in the first stage or your first training cycle? You just do an easy run after strength mm-hmm. training, but then as you get, you know, stronger, maybe you incorporate pickups or something yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. I had never heard of yeah. that before. Yeah, because 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 I think you have to get you have to get accustomed to just the whole process of of I'm going to go running immediately following strength training, and and even the way that you feel. Um, yeah. On that first one, it's gonna it's gonna feel pretty bad. Um, I think triathletes are probably accustomed to, to this notion um, by because of running bricks. You ask any triathlete, the first time they tried to run immediately following getting off the bike, they like almost fell over because it was just their their body just wasn't accustomed to that, and they and they they just didn't know how to do that. But once they've done that a whole lot more, um, you know, in the in the in the latter end of my triathlon career, by the time I was running off the bike. I felt fine. Um, you know, it, I didn't feel as if I was tired. I didn't feel as if, oh, I can't run because I've just run, you know, my, my, my legs didn't feel beaten up and all that sort of thing. Um, obviously, I'd end up running slower because, you know, I am truly tired. Um, but I didn't almost fall over, you know, as I'm getting off the bike like I did the first time. You mm-hmm. know? Um, so, yeah, I think you got to get accustomed to it and your body has to get accustomed to that feeling. And switching over to running after having done this other thing, I think your body has to learn how to do that. Um but then once your body has learned to do that, then you can start adding more quality into it. And that's when you really start to get the benefits of doing post-strength runs. Very interesting. Yeah, because I've definitely done the easy runs after strength training. And I think, as you said, I, felt, I always feel like my balance is way off. Mm. Yeah. Because that's very interesting. And yeah. it, it doesn't feel easy, for sure. It's definitely not the yeah. conversational right. run. Which is the reason why I can say, okay, favorite workout. Yeah. Because, because, because I think it's a workout. Mm-hmm. It's something that you strategically include in your training. You know, it's something that you say, okay, I need to improve my efficiency late in a race. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so you, you start to, to include it more. Yeah. And um, it helps your body run when there are structural challenges mm-hmm. without actually having to run to mile 22 yeah. and put all that mileage on your legs yeah. and where exactly. the injury risk shoots through the roof. So exactly. it's kind of a cheat code to get you to that point without. Exactly. You, know, the you just articulated what I've been trying to articulate for the past five minutes. So exactly. That's what I'm the, here the, for. The, the, thanks, buddy. <laughs> um, you 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 save yourself all that that injury risk and all that work. Mm-hmm. You have to do other work, obviously, but 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 you can get to that fatigued place that simulates mile twenty of the marathon or mile five of the ten k or whatever it is, um, or getting off the bike and starting the run in a triathlon. Um, you simulate that sort of fatigue without actually doing that thing, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it's super important. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, your last one, man. What is it? All right, this You're, one, this, and this would be your most favorite because you are truly counting them down. This it is indeed. Here uh, we go. Here we go. It better be good. Uh, Four hundred meter repeats with one minute rest. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that that, that one hundred that one minute rest is important. All right. Yes. All right. And this one's my favorite for many many too. reasons. Um, one, to me, it is the best workout for building a VO two max. Mm-hmm. It is one minute on, one minute off. Um, oh man, you're flying and, if you're doing them in sixty second quarters. <laughs> well. Good point. Well, uh, okay, maybe that was a bit of a stretch. Um, <laughs> but it is very much, it, it's very symmetrical. It's one lap around the track. Mm-hmm. 
one minute rest. So you really get to, from a mental standpoint, you get to hammer it into a pace. Mm-hmm. And just from a physiological perspective, it really taps into your VO2 max. I mean, your lungs are you're, are burning, you know, two thirds of the way to the workout mm-hmm. if, if you're lucky. How, how, um, how many repeats you do? So that you transition right into my next point. If you're a 5K runner, mm-hmm. you can do 20 to 24. Oh my god, shape. that would be so hard. The most I've ever done is 10. Really? Yeah. I would say if you're a marathoner, 10. <laughs> um, and because the reason is for me, if you are training for the 5K or so, okay, yeah. this is almost the workout you're building up towards, yeah, right? Okay. And this is what you are doing at the end where you're really, this is your hardest workout of the year. Right, right. Um, if you're a marathon runner, this is what you do when you're just starting to get into you know the early stages of the training cycle, mm-hmm. and you are in that period where you're trying to build up speed, but you haven't mm-hmm. built up the endurance yet, and you haven't built up that quality. Right. How, how fast are we doing them here? I usually do them at 3K to 5K yeah, pace. That's what I was going to say about 3K pace. Um, you know, this, this workout, it really tests and builds up your aerobic capacity, if you're wondering what kind of, maybe you listened to our last podcast and you're wondering, well, am I a lactate threshold kind of, am I better at the lactate threshold? Am I stronger in the aerobic endurance? Am I stronger at the aerobic capacity? This one is going to test the aerobic capacity and you're going to know if you kill this workout in, in proportion to maybe your other race times or other workout times, that shows you're very strong with the aerobic capacity because that's really what this, this test is, your VO2 engine, your, your, kind of, your ability to kind of rev up. And and turn out those four hundred meter repeats over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And on, on, on a bike, this mm-hmm. workout is a minute on a minute off. Yeah, uh, a minute on a minute off. And if you use FTP, it's a minute on a minute off at about at about one hundred and thirty percent of your mm-hmm. FTP. And it is hard. Yeah. Um, those of you who use Sufferfest, it's it's Revolver. Sufferfest Revolver is what it's called. Uh, it's super hard, but but yeah, it's super worthwhile, and it's not too long either. Yeah, and some have called it the Once a Runner workout. For those okay. of you who have ever read the book Once a Runner, he kind of first realized he was a good runner when his coach talent just kept saying, do four more, do four more, do four more. Um, so that's kind of what, it, what it's famous for. And I can tell you, for and, me... And he, and he, spoiler alert, he did 60. <laughs> yeah. Quentin, Quentin Cassie did 60 of them in that workout at 61 to 62, so... Yeah, that's not, an exaggeration. Not, Don't ever go for yeah, that. Yeah, we're not recommending that. He he slept for eighteen hours and peed blood afterwards. This is a fictional book, by the way. Yeah, not based on real life. But I can say, for me, for sentimental reasons, I can say this was the one workout I did in high school where I knew, oh, this is mm-hmm. this is what it takes to be a runner. This is what it takes to really push yourself. Mm-hmm. Because I can tell you, when you do this workout, you get about ten four hundred four or ten repeats in. And you're like, all right, I'm done, or I feel like I'm done. And then you realize, no, you have ten more to go, Oof. and you just keep. You just say, okay, I'm just going to just do this one, and then see what happens. Okay, I'll just do this one and see what happens. Okay, I'll just do this one, and yeah. then all of a sudden you're at eighteen. You're like, maybe I will actually make it. Mm-hmm. And so that to me is why I love it. Um, don't go bonkers with it. Don't please don't. If you're a marathon runner, please don't listen to this and then just go out and do twenty four. Right. That is only what you do for like your collegiate five k or. Um, even the 20, that's only and, and if even, you are. And even as a peak workout, like you said. Yeah, it is only what you do at the end of a very long training cycle where you're right. really building towards it. Right. But as folks know, like, you know, who come to our track workouts, it's a great workout to do 10 or 12 to really start to kind of sharpen that VO2 max right. and really start to kind of build up that engine. Yeah. It's hard, man. Um, you know, we, we've talked about this before that, that the hardest part of any workout or any race is the third quarter. And that's mm-hmm. and that's proven. That's not like 
oh, yeah, it's always written. No, it's actually, that's where people slow down the most, and that's what's always the most difficult. And so if you think about doing, uh, say, 16 of them, so mm-hmm. you're doing 16, because Revolver, the minute on, minute off on the bike that I was talking about, the Severfest one, is 16. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, by the time you get to right about halfway, like eight or nine, you're like, I don't know if I can finish this. Yeah. I, I, I really don't know. I, I really don't know if I can get this done. Um, but then by the time you get to 13 or 14, once you get through that third quarter, once you're into that last home stretch of the workout, if you will, uh, those last few, yeah, you're hurting a lot, but you, but you know you're going to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, from the from the point of view of what we were talking about of, of being proud of yourself afterwards, yeah, this is a, this is definitely a favorite workout. Because mm-hmm. yeah, right each one is hard, and that one minute rest is just enough for you to say, you know, this feels really good not running right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that one minute rest, by the way, it goes by a lot more quickly on repeat number 10 than it does on repeat number two. <laughs> yes. Repeat number two, you're like, just standing around, you're like, oh, I'm only at 40 seconds, so I'm good. Repeat number 10, you're like, holy crap, how's it already been 50 seconds? I just crossed the line. <laughs> right. I haven't even slowed down yet. Yeah. yeah, very good. So, to recap quickly, uh, my favorites are 1600, 400, the fast finish long run, and post strength runs. And Patrick? Mine are the medium long run, the fast finish long run, and then the 400 meter repeats. With one minute rest. Yes. Yeah. Uh, caveat, of course, you should always apply these workouts in, in intelligent ways in an overall training program. Uh, we're not suggesting that you go out and over the course of the next five days do these five workouts. Um, yeah. You know, you, you should keep in mind the systems you're trying to train, as we talked about in the last podcast, and, and you should keep in mind, obviously, to the recovery that, that needs to accompany um, all these different workouts here. Uh, talk to your coach, um, apply them in an intelligent way, um, and you'll become faster. Last words, Patrick? Uh, Patrick, who, by the way, is wearing his high school cross-country state championship t-shirt today. Oh, uh, yes. I, I guess I was thinking about the uh, 400 repeats and the many, many times I spent running around the parking right track. On. I'm worth it. He's also drinking coffee. I have a Darth Vader mug here. So, uh, so if these workouts seem particularly evil... Maybe that's why. That, there you go. Yeah, I, on the other hand, am drinking tea out of a Jen Urso mug, and so she's far more, uh, far more heroic, but still rebellious. So, <laughs> right on. All right. So, on that incredibly nerdy note, uh, happy New Year, everybody. Yeah, and happy running. And thanks for listening to us. And there you have our latest episode, our final episode of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast of 2017. We really appreciate your listening here this year. Um, We're hoping to get more podcasts out to you in 2018, and so we appreciate your continued listening uh, next year. Uh, Don't forget to go on iTunes and give us a rating and give us a review. That helps other people listen to our podcast as well. Reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, on our blog, mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. You can find our sponsor, ITL Coaching, at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter, at itlcoaching, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash performance. Um, and finally, of course, as always, don't forget about my wife, the travel planner, who is getting ready to kick off 31 days of destinations on Facebook. She can book your travel anywhere in the world, including to your next race. Um, Casey Travel Planner, facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner, M-E-V, or you can drop her a line at Casey Travel Planner at gmail.com, K-A-C-I-E, Travel Planner at gmail.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollander, this is George Darden. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.